Hey, I'm Danny Pincus, the Brand and Partnerships Director here at Future Women. I'm super excited to present this special series to you in partnership with Westfield and Dove. The Westfield Women in Conversation series has been on the road for the past few months. We've travelled to 11 Westfield centres across Australia with some of the country's most recognisable women. Journalist, TV presenter, author and hashtag crap housewife, Jessica Rowe. Performer, radio host and glitter lover, M. Rassiano. Journalist, 60 Minutes and Weekend Today presenter, Alison Langdon. And author and domestic violence advocate, Rosie Batty. This series has been dedicated to celebrating real beauty and empowering confidence in women. You'll hear from these inspiring women who have found their liberation through change in the face of adversity and life's challenges. We spoke to them on topics of style, ageing, motherhood, about relationships with other women, their families, their friends, and most importantly, themselves. Here, Jessica Rowe talks with FW founder and managing director, Helen McCabe, at Westfield Carousel, located in WA. We hope you enjoy. From undergoing IVF to conceive her two children, her journey with depression, her departure as co-host of Channel 10's Studio 10, uh, Jessica has always kept it real, sharing her triumphs and tears. Please now give her a massive welcome, Jessica Rowe. Oh, hello. Oh, thank you so much. Gee, it's, you know what? It means so much to me to see all of your beautiful faces here because we all lead such busy lives as we were mentioning, Helen. So for each and every one of you to take time out of your day to spend time with us means the world to me. Working in Canberra was, it was an opportunity for me to, to learn and to spread my wings. I had a very special boss at the time, a lovely man called Ken Begg, who became a mentor of mine, and he believed in me. And I think if I hadn't have had a boss like that at the start of my career, I don't think I would have lasted in journalism. Because as you know better than anyone, Helen, it is a tough industry. And here though, was a lovely man who believed in me, who gave me room to make mistakes and I drew on his advice many times through the years especially with you know various times when I'd worked in the media and it had been really hard. You know what I'm such a believer in life to grab opportunities what is the worst thing that can happen you get a no or it doesn't turn out the way you hope but I would much rather live a life going for those opportunities and chances rather than regretting things down the tracks. We met 20 years ago and we've been together ever since and been married for 15 and a half years. And, and I can't imagine my life without him in it. And he, we're a great team. And he, what I love about him so much is he's enabled me to be me. And I am a bit quirky and crazy and often uh, will sort of not go off on a whim, but he will embrace that about me and love me as I am. And that's so, that's been so important. He hasn't ever tried to change me. Many of you may know that I went through IVF to have Allegra, who's now 12, and why I'm open about that and open about a lot of my life, and I do get sort of emotional when I talk about it, is because 
it's not just my life or my experience. Each and every one of you here today have had different challenges and experiences. And I think as women, it is so important that we share those stories and connect with one another. Because often when you go through those things, you feel like you're the only one. When I went through IVF, I felt, I felt like a failure because what I had assumed would come naturally, being able to be a mum, to be able to conceive naturally wasn't happening for me. And so that was such a struggle for me to reconcile myself. And, and I know once I started to talk about my experience, and mind you, it wasn't until I was successfully pregnant with Allegra, that I was able to talk about it, that then a whole lot of other women would tell me about their experiences. Because going through IVF, it is, it's a lonely road and, and there are so many ups and downs and nothing can prepare you for, it is a cliche, but the roller coaster of emotions that you go through. The hormones, I mean, the hormones that you, you inject into yourself, they send you crazy. I mean, if you're not emotional enough, you've got all these extra hormones. And I'm normally a very, I like to think, calm person usually, but going through IVF, I was so volatile and I was so angry with people and angry with the world. And that was not naturally my mindset. And, and also what helped me enormously was hope. And I'm such a believer in traveling hopefully in our lives, whatever it may be that we're dealing with, you need to hold on to that hope. And when I went through IVF, I always had that hope. Sometimes it would be the size of a pinprick, other times a balloon. But I never lost sight of that hope and that was what kept me going. And so I like to think that by sharing my story and my experience of that, it, it provides hope for other people, that there can be a way through, but that it is a lonely road. It doesn't have to be because it's not just you that's going through it. It's so many of us, it's a tribe of women. And, and I think sometimes we forget how strong we can be together. And I think what, what is so wonderful about what Future Women is doing is that it's giving us all an opportunity to get together and to have these sorts of conversations. My mum's got bipolar disorder. So I spent a lot of my earlier life caring for my mum and my two sisters. And we, mum was always very open about her illness. And that made such a difference for us as a family to make sense of what was going on. Because it's still so hard when the person you love, the person you put on a pedestal, can't cope with the simplest of tasks. It is heartbreaking. And something that, that I feel very strongly about is children are the hidden carers across this country. We do not appreciate how much children are having to manage their parents. But with mum, she was always very open. She is a wonderful mum and was very present when she was well. 
And so as we grew up and as mum wanted, mum's a writer, a beautiful writer, and we decided that we wanted to share our family story. And so for many years, we would talk together about the impact of mental illness on families. However, when I myself realised that I had a mental illness, that I had postnatal depression after the birth of Allegra, and then I also had it a second time with Giselle. When I realized that I had a mental illness, the level of shame that I felt was gobsmacking. And what surprised me so much was I was someone who had grown up with a mum with a mental illness. We'd publicly advocated for change. We'd said there should be no difference between a physical illness and a mental illness. But when I realised I had a mental illness, I felt ashamed. I felt like a failure and I thought, what right do I have to feel like this? I am a woman who supposedly has everything. I now have this baby that I have yearned for and longed for for so long. I've been through IVF. I have this beautiful baby, this beautiful husband, a family who love me and support me and wonderful friends. Why am I feeling like this? And I felt so ashamed. And and the level of that shame, it did shock me. And, and I remember at the time, I tried to push it away. I knew early on that I had postnatal depression, but I didn't want to admit it. So you didn't tell anyone? I didn't tell anyone. And you just hoped it would go away? And I thought it will go away. Mm. And I was very good at putting on a mask. I'd been good at doing that, having grown up with my mum because my role in the family from an early age had been to be the cheerful one, the cheerleader, the sunny one who would get everyone else through. So I could put on that mask. Then having worked in the media where I'd had to wear different masks to get through jobs, to be consistent day after day. So I was able to hide from my mum, from my darling Petey, from everyone what was really going on. And I had naively thought, if I ignore this, if I push this away, it will disappear. It didn't disappear, it got worse. And I, I was so frightened, I got terribly sick. And I, I remember at my lowest, being terribly afraid that something terrible would happen to my daughter and that I would be taken away. And that was how out of whack my brain was. And I remember though, Beyond Blue had, it's funny how sort of things happen, um, had rung me to say, because I'd done work with them in the past, would you be our patron for our perinatal program? And they had no idea what I was going through. I said, oh yes, but can you send me some information? So they sent me the information with the checklist of all the symptoms. I could tick every one of those off. I thought, I'll just hide it away in my top drawer, it'll disappear. No, it didn't disappear. And I knew though, when, it, when I was at my lowest and most frightened, I thought, I cannot keep going on like this. So I told my mum, because I knew mum would understand. And my mum said to me, she said, promise me you will tell Peter and promise me you will talk to your doctor. So I knew I had to have those hard conversations. And the thing is, 
I had been, I was misguided in thinking that it wasn't strong to ask for help. But in fact, asking for help is the strongest thing you can ever do. Showing someone your vulnerability is the strongest thing you will ever do. And thank God I had the strength to do that. And it was the hardest thing. And I remember talking to Petey. He was home from a story because he was busy on 60 Minutes. So he was traveling a lot. So it made it easier for me to pretend that everything was great because he wasn't around. He was home this particular weekend. I cooked up his favorite meal, which was schnitzel. It still is schnitzel. Now I use panko breadcrumbs, so it's much better. But I cooked him schnitzel and corn, mashed potato, and I thought, okay, I'll cook him the dinner, then I have to tell him. We were talking, he calls me Pussycat. He said, oh, Pussycat, I'm so proud of you. You're doing so well. Oh, it's just amazing. It's just wonderful. I'm so proud. And I took a deep breath and I thought, this is, this is my moment. I have to tell him. So I said, Petey, I'm not. I'm really frightened. I'm afraid I have postnatal depression. And Peter, being the darling man that he is, he took me in his arms and he said to me, it's going to be okay. And that is what I needed to hear that night. I didn't need to hear, don't be so ridiculous. You must be imagining it. So-and-so is far worse off. You're doing fine, you'll be right. And I know that is often what well-meaning people will say to someone who comes to you to ask for help. That is not helpful. When someone is brave enough to say, I'm struggling, I need help, you need to listen and to take that seriously. So Petey then slipped into fix-it mode, which was great. He said, right, I'm going to ring the doctor, we'll sort it out. So the next morning, he got me in to see my obstetrician. I poured my heart out to her. She then organised for me to see a psychiatrist the day after, a specialist in postnatal depression. And I poured my heart out to her. But I remember when I first went into that appointment, I put on lipstick like I've got on today, a fabulous dress. I sat down and my psychiatrist said to me, you can stop pretending now. <laughs> a bit of weight came off my shoulders because I'd spent so much time pretending to everyone around me. You know, don't you? <laughs> and, and, and basically then I poured my heart out and... And when I told her everything that was going through my mind, she said to me, but that's normal. And I went, normal? I am a crazy lady. What I've just said to you is not normal. She said, it is normal for someone who has postnatal depression. Again, a bit more weight came off my shoulders. I was desperate to get better. And I spoke to my psychiatrist that first appointment about what, what I could do. And she said, well, there's medication. I said, great, I want to start. And we joke about it now that I was probably her most compliant patient in terms of having no problems taking antidepressants because although bipolar is very different illness to postnatal depression, I had seen the difference that medication had meant for my mum. So I had no problems in taking medication. And obviously it's a personal thing, but I'm very open about still taking medication. And I think, again, there sh should be no shame in that. 
We don't say to people who are diabetics or have high blood pressure, don't take that, drink a green juice, stand on your head, meditate, you'll be okay. We don't say that to people taking medication for physical ailments, so please don't say it to someone taking medication for a mental health issue. That's not useful. Yes, it, it might be nice and feel good to stand on your head, but it is not going to, to make, to cure a mental health problem. So I had no qualms taking the medication. It started to work, it took time, but, and I'll never forget, standing in our front garden was probably maybe three, four weeks after I'd begun on the antidepressants. And I could smell the gardenias. We had these gardenia bushes in our front. And I hadn't smelt that scent in so long. They had been flowering for ages, but suddenly I could smell this beautiful scent. And that to me was a symbol of, of hope. It was a symbol of exhaling and a symbol of, I was coming back to myself. And it's still, it's still a, I don't want to say battle because it's not a battle, but it's a lifelong journey for all of us. We're never there yet. And we need to ask for help when, when appropriate. We need to make changes, have different choices in our life. We need to do all of those things because we only get one shot at this. And I feel so strongly about living my best life, living my best life for my husband, for my kids. And because it's all, it's all we've got. You don't realise what you're made of until you're in the middle of something really hard. And for all of us, we've been in those sorts of situations. It's just, I think, with the Today Show, the difference being mine was so public, so everyone had an opinion on it. But there are a number of things that, that kept me going. First of all, I, you, you don't realise what's going to unfold. So that almost, in a way, insulates you because I, I just knew I had a job to do. So I thought, I will be professional, I will show up each day, not knowing what that day would hold. But I thought, I'm being paid to do a job, I will show up. The other thing, or number of things, the other thing that kept me going was I was pregnant. So I was going through IVF. Right. during this time, yeah, that, yeah. but I was pregnant. So I, and it makes me emotional thinking about it, I had this wonderful secret growing inside of me, something far bigger and better and meaningful. So Allegra was like my little companion at that time and my, my sense of there is a bigger, better life ahead. So she kept me going. My darling husband kept me going, but also what kept me going was the beautiful people who I didn't know, who would send me emails, who would send me cards, who would leave messages on the Channel 9 switch. And that meant the world to me. One of the lovely assistant producers would print them all out and they'd be waiting for me each morning in my dressing room. And that kept me going the strangers who would give me a hug in the street and say, we love your laugh, keep snorting, we love your short hair. Those sorts of things, that kept me going. And then also the incredible journalists and people that I looked up to in media and in politics who also reached out to me. 
all of those things kept me going. And I think what I learned from that is how important it is to reach out to people around you when they're going through a hard time. You will never know the difference that will make because for me, the time that it took for the kindness of strangers who took time out of their lives to either write to me or stop me in the street and give me a hug was so meaningful and kept me going. So I think there is always far bigger picture out there. And so it was all of those different things that kept me going. Female friendship is everything. I can't imagine my life without my friends. What I've found though, as I've got older, is that that group has shrunk and probably though a bit more through my choice as well because what I've learned over time and one of my best friends has got this wonderful theory which I, I'm sort of borrowing where she talks about zones and she talks about your friends in zone one, the people who really matter and they're the ones that you listen to that you know will show up when you need them. And then you'll have other friends, but they might be in zone two, three, four, five, and out they go. And you don't need to waste your energy, your emotional energy, your worries on them because they're not in your zone one. They're not behaving like they should be in there. So I've learned about that over time because I think too, as we go through our lives, often we'll have friends that are right for a particular moment and that won't necessarily carry on. But then you will have friends who will show up all the time. And, and what's been for me such a joy about getting to know Denise Drysdale is, you know, we met on the set of Studio 10 four years ago and we just clicked. And, and that's rare, I think, that yes, you'll have work colleagues who are friends, but not necessarily your closest buddy. And we just clicked and, and, and that's a great joy for my life. I can't imagine my life without her in it. And what, what I love about Nisi, who has become one of my best friends, is we have so much fun together. I would imagine. Oh, we, she's like my partner in silliness. And that's just the best because I don't take much encouragement, but, but we, we just have so much fun together. We love a costume. We love to get dressed up. Some of you may know we, we've got a podcast uh, called One Fat Lady and One Thin Lady. We're hoping to do a second series. And what we did, because it's small, to try and spread the word, we thought, okay, we need a marketing campaign. And Nisi's always thinking, she said, I know, let's get dressed up as a podcast, walk around the streets of Sydney and film people try reacting to what we are. So I thought, yes, I'm in for this. So I got dressed in this fabulous pea in a pod suit. So it was bright green, huge, and my head was one of the peas. And I had all these peas down here. So I was the pod and Nisi was the cast. But we couldn't find any proper plaster casts, so I went to the local chemist store and got some uh, bandages that were on special, because Nisi loves a special, and bandaged her all up. So we took to the streets and we'd say to people, what are we? And they'd sort of eventually guess that I was a pod, and then we'd go, and? And then they'd look at Nisi and they'd go, 
have you been in a terrible accident? (laughs) You all right? And then, so we had so much fun doing that. And then we were talking about my fabulous costume that it couldn't go to waste. So we decided that it would be a good thing to surprise Petey in, in bed. So, yes, so that night I thought I'm going to wear the pee in the pod to bed. So Peter, <laughs> so I swore my daughters to secrecy. I said, don't spoil the surprise. Do not say a word. So I'm lying under the doona, getting very hot in this pee in a pod suit. And Petey arrives home from work and he's going, pussycat, pussycat. I'm going, Petey, I'm in bed. And he's thinking, great, it's midweek. What's going on? So he comes into the bedroom and I pull the doona off and I go, surprise. And he just looked at me and went, are you all right? And I was so cross. I got up in a huff, as much as you can be in a huff, in a pee in a pod suit, and I wouldn't talk to him for the night. Because I said, this is so funny. Don't you think this is funny? And he was just like, oh, I'm a bit worried about you. (laughs) So they're the sorts of things with Nisi that we get up to. And more recently, sorry, Helen, I know. (laughs) I'm not needed, really. (laughs) Oh, yes, you are. We travelled. We're hoping to take it a bit wider, but... We went on the road together and did some shows in regional Victoria with Nisi singing some songs. Then I get up on stage and we tell some stories and then we sing a song together because I'm a frustrated singer. I can't sing. And Nisi would only let me sing one word in the song. It was repeated over. You know that song she's got? Personality. So my word was personality, smile, personality. (laughs) And I did that in a chicken suit. (laughs) You know what, for me, what I love about this Crap Housewife movement, this new book that I've written, Diary of a Crap Housewife, is what began as just something that I did for myself, basically laughing at myself and laughing at my own inadequacies with cooking, has grown into this really lovely connection with so many women and families right across the country. Because to me, what it's about is, and I'll answer how crap am I, um, is embracing our imperfection. We put far too much pressure on ourselves to be perfect in every aspect of our lives, and we can't. To me, being a crap housewife is about embracing your imperfection. And for me, it, I am a terrible cook. I don't, it's, I'm not interested, and, it's, and I get distracted. Probably the most recent, or one of the not so good experiences was, because Petey now orders in his own meals because he is over mince five different ways. Like, because mince, I mean, mince is highly underrated. We can do spaghetti bolognese, tacos, shepherd's pie, sanchoy bao. What was that? Yeah, lasagna, see, all of these things. You can just keep reinventing it night after night. My husband got over that. So he orders his own food in. One particular weekend, because I had a bit more time, I thought, okay, I'm going to just try. So I got one of those Jamie Oliver um, meals, the ones, it was a lamb, a roast lamb, and I thought, can't get this wrong. 
So I put everything in the oven and the potatoes and, oh, it's terrific. And Petey's carving it up, serving it. We all sit down and eat. And then he brings it back onto the bench top. Everyone's eaten. And I find this square of plastic <laughs> under the leftover lamb. No one told me that there was that plastic square in the meat, like under the meat. Yes. And I just saw it and went, oh dear, have I poisoned my family? So I rang my younger sister, who is a chef. I'd, she got all the cooking, organising jeans. And I was going, hello. She's like, why are you whispering? I don't want everyone to hear. I might have poisoned them. She's like, what? I said, there's the plastic in the meat. I've cooked it. Is that okay? <laughs> and she said, I'm sure it's fine. And she was absolutely right. No one was poisoned. They all enjoyed it. And they only discovered it, or actually Petey only discovered it when he read about it in my new book. Because <laughs> I didn't even tell him. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this conversation, please make sure you go and check out the rest of them. And if you're not already a member of Future Women and you're interested in joining our growing movement, head to futurewomen.com to join the club. <laughs>